Open your Bible to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. Hold your spot there. We're going to cover a lot of ground in Ephesians today, but we're also going to have other verses. Some will be on the screen for you. Everything that we read from Ephesians will be directly out of the Bible. Those verses will not be on the screen, so that's why you need to be in Ephesians. So whether you've got a digital copy, hard copy, either one works, but in Ephesians, I'll be reading from the New King James Version. So let's open up with a word of prayer, and then we'll get jumping into the message. Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, We thank you that uh, this is the first Sunday after Easter. Um, God, I I can't even imagine uh, what your disciples were feeling uh, that day, uh, other than they must have just been ecstatic beyond words. And so, God, don't let the enthusiasm of Easter die for us here today. Let it be something that uh, carries and, and, and lands on us during the course of this message today uh, that we just are re-energized by the fact that we serve not only a crucified Savior, but a risen one. So God bless your word, bless your church. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. All right, so we begin a brand new series of messages on Easter Sunday. And we talked about, we began talking about vision. And vision is something more than just, wow, that's a really good idea. Wouldn't it be cool if that happened? I think lots of us have those kind of, of ideas that strike us in the course of, of, our, of our daily lives uh, during different seasons. We, you think of something like, that'd be really cool if that happened. But, you know, if it does, it does. If it doesn't, it doesn't. No big deal. That's not vision. A vision is something that grips you, takes control of you, and compels you to do something about it. A vision is something that just positively, absolutely has to get done. And when you have one of those kinds of visions, the next step in in moving through that is, can I pay for it? Because you got to be able to pay for your vision. And in Luke chapter 14, Jesus says, you know, it's it's a good idea to count the cost before you start something. You say, hey, you don't build a tower without counting what's it going to cost you. Because you want to know what is is this going to include? What's it going to cost me? What do I have to have in order to accomplish this vision? Now, here's the thing. When you have a vision that compels you to act and you know that you have either acquired the funding or you know how you're going to be able to pay for the vision, then you go into what is often referred to as the design stage, all right? I got a vision, I know I can pay for it, so now I got to put some meat on those bones, right? I got I to design this thing. All right, so last Sunday, we began Easter with this incredibly beautiful cabin. This can be yours for the mere price, low, low price of $10,000. And so anybody want to buy it, 10 10 grand, you take it home. It's awesome. (laughs) So we we had this cabin, this house on the stage because you remember seeing this circle up here that God is building a family. 
God's building a family. And so we let this house be kind of the touchstone for the idea that God is building a family and every family has to have a place, right? Right? All right, so God's building a family and we're letting this be the touchstone. And so because we're, we're talking about God building a family and we had a house, this is going to be sort of our reference point for the rest of the messages in this series. All right, so let's put ourselves in, in the position of we had a vision for the house that we want. How many of you have ever had a vision for the house that you want? Go ahead, raise your hand. I mean, that's, this is the dream that we almost all have, our home, man, our dream home. All right, so you've got a vision for your home. You figured out that, hey, I have, I have been able to, to uh, acquire the funding. I got a loan. I know how I'm going to pay for it, whatever the case may be, but you know you can do it. So now, once you have that, your next step in building a house is usually to go to an architect, right? Okay, and the architect is going to take your vision and he's going to start to build plans and pictures of, of your vision. He's gonna, he's gonna put some, some flesh on those things. He's gonna make them sort of come to life. And as, as he does that, now, here's a really interesting thing. I don't know if you've ever thought about this in this way. When, when the architect begins to prepare the plans and the pictures for your home, that's really not that much for your benefit. You know why? Because you've already seen this in your own mind. All he's doing is reflecting what you've already seen. You know who, who the plans and the pictures really are for? It's for everybody else. It's so that other people can wrap their arms around your vision. It's so that other people can understand what your vision is. And it's so that other people, if they're so inclined, can figure out, okay, I see where they're going. And now because there's plans and pictures, I can come alongside and I can help you accomplish your vision. All right, so is everybody with me so far? Is this making sense? All right. So the title of our message series is the start something big. The start something big. Now, for a lot of people that don't pay a whole lot of attention to church stuff and Christianity, and sadly for maybe a larger percentage than most of us would care to admit for those within the church itself, Easter kind of is, is the big deal, right? And then it's done. Easter's done. Well, phew, thank goodness that's over. Church, Easter is not the end of the story. It's the beginning of it. Okay, I'm gonna say that again because that was just a pathetic response. <laughs> Easter is not the end of the story. It is the beginning of it. Amen. Just so you, you realize this, we are the only faith that worships a savior that is not buried somewhere. Amen? Easter ain't the end, it's the beginning. Easter was the start of something huge. It was the beginning of God carrying out his vision of building a people and a family unto himself to enjoy himself with them together forever. It's the start of it. Easter was the payment for that. Because in order for God to fulfill his vision, 
it has to, it has to be paid for. Well, because of sin, because of sin, it requires a perfect sacrifice. God's home, the one that he's building, the one that he's inviting us into, it's his dwelling. God is perfect. Only perfect things can dwell inside of God's perfect dwelling. Does that make sense? Right? Okay. So because of sin, we can't enter into God's dwelling. So the only way that God could fix that and pay for the vision was a perfect sacrifice. In other words, you and I, and, and, and I, I don't mean to offend anybody when I say this, so please don't be offended if you have said this before, because I'm not pointing at anybody and I'm, I'm not throwing rocks. But I hear this far too often. We're all God's children. Church, we are not all God's children. We all have the potential and the ability to become God's children. And that is through the cross. That is through salvation. We are born in a condition of sin, separated from God outside the family of God. But God in his mercy said, I'm not okay with that because I want to build a family. I want to gather you to myself and bring you into my household. I want to bring you into my family along with all the others that have ever said yes to Jesus. But the only way that I can do that is through a sacrifice of something perfect. You ain't perfect. I ain't perfect. Ain't nobody been perfect except Jesus. And so Jesus died on the cross to fund that vision of God. Now, by the way, last Sunday, and, and we don't still have the exact count uh, because not everybody turns in cards, but we had at least seven to ten people that said yes to Jesus and became part of the family of God last Sunday. Amen? And if you're here this morning and you're not sure that you are in and part of the family of God will give you a chance to join them, to become part of that family at the end of our service today. I promise you, there is no greater choice, no greater decision that you can ever make than that one. Well, there were multiple people that made that decision last Sunday to say yes and become part of the family of God. And so God has now expressed his vision, he's paid for the vision, now God goes into the design phase. He goes into the design phase. All right, so after Jesus rises from the tomb, we know that he spends about 40 days with his disciples and there are recorded over 500 witnesses that interacted with Jesus after he rose from the grave and he's about 40 days and then he gathered with his disciples and we read portions of this at the end of, of the Gospel of Matthew. We read portions at the end of the Gospel of Mark. We also, I don't know if you're aware of this, but at the, Acts chapter 1, there's also a part of this, that Jesus is getting ready to go back to heaven. And he says, wait, wait for the Holy Spirit. You're going to receive power and you're going to be witnesses for me, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. In other words, you're going to start to tell my story, not only here, but everywhere around you, all the way out to the ends of the earth. And then he said goodbye. And the disciples went into a season of prayer. And shortly after that, in the book of Acts, we witness the launch of the church. And the church 
is the design phase of God's vision. I'm going to give you a way to think about the church this morning that maybe you have never thought about. Okay, so an architect, when you share the vision of what you want with the architect, they begin to to draw up plans and pictures so that the rest of the people that that matter to you, the rest of the world, can understand what your vision is, right? That is the role of the church. The church acts like an architect who has received the vision of God and now is putting plans and pictures together so that the rest of the world can understand what God's vision is for all of them. All right? So, with that being said, let's, let's dive into some of the particulars. So part of the role of the church is to be is the description and the declaration of the vision. All right, now I'm gonna go spend a lot of time on this one because when I explain to you what I mean in this one, most of you are gonna grab this one pretty quickly. Um, all right, so when you read the description of a, a house, uh, here's, here's a fairly common house. Three beds, two baths, uh, gourmet kitchen, two-car garage, you know, great master bath in the bedroom, Right? How many of you think that every three-bedroom, every two-bath garage looks all exactly the same? They all look exactly the same. See, none, all right? So all that is is the basic details. It's, it's just, hey, here's what the house is about. Here's what, it, here's what it contains. Here's the basic information of the house. The church has the job and the role of describing and declaring God's vision to the rest of the world. Now, here's how I think that happens. It's through the exercise and the execution of the Great Commission. Okay, because Jesus said, go out, tell the whole world that I died for them, I love them, and I want to establish a relationship with them through repentance and salvation. That's, that's your job. Go out and tell them the basic good news of the gospel, that they're a sinner, Christ died because he loves them, he rose from the dead, and he wants to establish a long-term eternal relationship through salvation and repentance. And as we do that, we're, we're telling people the details, we're describing and, 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 and declaring the vision of God. Now, there might not be a whole lot of fluff to that, but it's a basic element of, of helping people understand what God's vision is and wrapping their arms around it. Now, here's the, here's the reason I'm going to spend a lot of time on that one, because I think all of us get that part, right? We understand that the role of the church is to stand up and preach the gospel. We know that, right? We declare that. We describe what God is doing. We understand that's part of our job as the church. So we get that one. But I think the other elements of the architect are the ones that we struggle with, and they're ones I'm going to spend a little bit more time with. So open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Now, we're going to talk about the demonstration of the vision. So now, when you get three bedrooms, two baths, two-car garage, so forth and so on, the details are great, but you know what really gets your motor running is when you start to see pictures, right? Because you know they don't all look the same, 
And so when you start to see pictures of what that three-bedroom, two-bath looks like, now, now your heart starts racing a little bit because now you're starting like, wow, okay, I got the details, but now I'm seeing a picture of what this actually looks like, and I love it. Have you ever seen a picture of something that you wanted? You didn't quite know what it was, but when you finally saw the picture, you just got all fired up. Raise your hand. Come on. Okay, that's all over the building. This is the part that I don't think we quite understand about our role as a church. The church is supposed to be a picture of God's vision to come, a picture of eternity, a picture of heaven. Now, let me give you what is that picture? What is the picture that God has for his vision in heaven? This one will be on the screen for you, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. It's, it's a verse that many of you have seen before and you're familiar with. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands. In other words, God's vision for his family, God's vision for eternity is that people from all backgrounds, people from every walk of life, from every socioeconomic status, people of all ages during the course of, of, of time on the earth, people from every reach and stretch of the earth, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are going to come together with nothing between them praising God. Amen? That's God's vision to enjoy and share with all of us for eternity. All right, so now how in the world is the church supposed to reflect that? So number one, the church on earth begins to reflect that picture of God's vision by being a, a church of one status where we're all equals. Okay, we'll put uh, this passage on the screen for you, and then we're going to begin reading from Ephesians. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 Paul writes, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you get what he's saying there? There's no distinction between any of you. In Christ Jesus, you are all equal. Now, in the world, we don't like that. We want to we wanna, we wanna say, well, I'm better I'm better than them. I, they're not worthy. They're not good enough. I'm, I'm, I'm so far superior. I know more. I do more. I have more. Or I'm not worthy. I'm not enough. I don't, I don't have the ability to, say, to do such and such. And Paul says, in Jesus, none of that matters anymore. And so in, in Ephesians chapter 2, Looking in verse 13, we're going to see something very, very similar to that. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Okay, so let's just be real clear about what he's saying. You were once far off. You were nowhere close to God. But, but he's brought you close. Now, who's he talking to? 
First of all, he is talking primarily to the ex- exposing the difference and declaring the difference between Jews and Gentiles. Now, you want to talk about the haves and the have-nots? You want to talk about people who are superior to someone else? The, the distinction between Jews and Gentiles was enormous. We talk, and, and you've heard a lot of talk about white supremacy in, in, our, in our culture today. Now, I think that's heinous because we're equal before the Lord. However, it, you could almost equate white supremacy to the distinction between Jews and Gentiles because the Jews who thought they were God's people looked down just incredibly at everybody else that wasn't them. They had such disdain for everybody else. No one was worthy. No one could be who they were. And God said, nope, nope, you gotta, you gotta stop thinking that because nothing could be further from the truth. So continuing in verse 14, he himself is our peace who has made both one. He took two parties who were so incredibly diametrically opposed and he's made them both one. He's broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Now check out verse 16, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. There's a whole lot to unpack in verse 16. But he reconciled. Church, do you realize that one of the major ministries of the church is that of reconciliation? Do you realize that? Reconciliation is people who have ought against each other. Reconciliation is people who are at odds with each other. Reconciliation is between people who have had division between themselves. It is the fact that we have had division between us and God because of our sin. And the ministry of the church, the ministry of Jesus through the gospel, has reconciliation at its heart. And so Paul is writing that through what Jesus did on the cross, that God is reconciling two parties who have been so at odds with one another, bringing them to God in one body. You know why? Because we're equal. We have one status before God, and that is redeemed. So the church, as the architect showing the vision of God to the world, is supposed to be practicing a heart, a spirit of reconciliation and oneness. Does that make sense based on what the word says here? All right, I just want to make sure that you're with me here. One status of equals. The other part that the church on earth needs to be describing and, and making painting a picture of is that we are one household and one family. So let's continue reading. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Now, therefore, you're no longer strangers, no longer foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. How cool is that? 
Verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. All right, one household, one family, one faith. And we're members of the household of God. And Paul says that this is all built on Jesus as the chief cornerstone. So when you start to build, there's, there's always that one place that you have to start. Everything else works off of that one spot. Right, Mark? There's one place that you've got to establish and everything else works off of it. And if that part is messed up, none of the rest of it's going to work. All right, so when you start to build, we'll just call this corner the cornerstone and that's, that's Jesus' work on the cross. Everything that God is building is built on this cornerstone of what Jesus did. And then here's what's so cool. As he builds this, this dwelling that is a place for all of God's people who say yes to Jesus, not only does it become a dwelling for everybody, we become the dwelling itself. We start to be built on top of each other. We start to lock arms. We start to lock our elbows with one another. We come together and we build something that becomes a picture to the world of what God's vision is for eternity. Check out a very similar verse in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Peter says, you also as living stones, you're being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, Christ's work was about more than just producing individual disciples. It's not just about getting saved and moving on and being done. It's about getting saved and then being built into, being incorporated into this dwelling, this building, this this, uh, place that God is inviting all the rest of the world to become a part of. As we do that, and listen, how many of you feel like Uh, And without being political, but how many of you feel like that our culture right now, our nation feels as divided maybe as it has ever been? All right. And you feel you feel pushed into one corner or the other. And the more that 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 we push against each other, here's what happens. One side wants to move farther in this direction because they're reacting to the other side. And then the other side wants to push farther in this direction because we're trying to distance ourselves from that side. And we just increase the divide, beat bigger and bigger and wider and deeper. Now that's what goes on in the world. The church, God help us when we start to look like that in the church. Somebody better say amen. Because the church is the place where we are supposed to have one status, we're equal. It's the place where it doesn't matter what your background is, we come together as one family. And when the world looks at that and they see that picture, they're like, wow, 
Where else in the world can I get that? Nowhere. This is the one place that provides me what I cannot get anywhere else. And not only can I get it here, I get to enjoy that for an eternity. That's what God is doing through his church. We are the architects showing the pictures and the plans to the world. Does that make sense? So as we do plans and we do pictures... It's great, but you know what I found, and I'm not a real detail person, but I found that it's the details that really start to sort of give one of these things life. As you start to describe what actually it is, how, how it comes together, how it works. So how in the world, how in the world does the church show this in detail? How does the world show this equality? How does the world show this oneness? How does the church show to the rest of the world that we are one family? How do we do that? Well, I think there are some details in the vision that we need to understand, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these. I'm just going to give you an idea of what some of them can be. One is loving each other through differences in order to serve God. I think that's one of the primary details that God calls his church to build into this, into this uh, home that he's building to show the world is that when the world looks at us, they see us working through differences in order to serve God. Now, how many of you in here are married this morning? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you in here who are married have never once ever in your entire married life had a difference of opinion. I find that shocking. How in the world is it possible that, that people who are Christians can be married and have disagreements? That's crazy. And yet, you're still married. How can that be? Because you love each other enough to say, my love for you is stronger than my disagreement with you. Right? That's the picture the church is supposed to be painting. Is that when we come together, we're so, we're, we don't make much of our differences, we make much of our God. You know what happens in far too many churches? We don't major on our God, we major on our differences. And when our differences are bigger than our God, what does that say about our God? And so when the world looks at the church who is fighting and feuding among themselves instead of coming together and say, I'm going to love you through my differences because my God is bigger than our differences, gets a little confusing. Another detail, I think, is people humbling themselves and putting away pride and position in order to honor God. You know, there are people that in the world have... Uh, great honor uh, positions of honor and prestige. But in the church, Jesus said, whoever wants to be uh, greatest must first be what? A servant. It's got to be a servant. 
And so it doesn't matter what your, your title is, what your position is outside uh, these walls. When we come together as a church, when the world sees people of power and prestige in the world out there come in here and, and get on their knees in prayer before the Lord or go pick up uh, trash out in the parking lot or go wipe a baby's behind even when you know they make $100,000 a year, but they love kids and they love their church enough that they'll clean dirty diapers of kids that aren't theirs. We're showing the world a picture of God's vision of heaven, of his eternity that he's inviting us into because we humble ourselves and we put away our pride in our position in order to honor God. How many of you think you're going to be bigger than God when you get to heaven? Anybody? So we might as well demonstrate that now, right? One other idea, one other detail is setting aside other priorities to put God first. Now let's just be honest. This one is one we're really working on and often struggling with. Is it not? Because the world screams, over here, over here, over here, over here. And God says, God first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all these things will be what? Added unto you. All what? All these other things are what? Everything else. God knows how to take care of us. When we put God first, and that's, this is the part that really blows the world's mind, right? When you put other priorities aside and you put God first, and they see that somehow, some way, God is still making things work in your life, how do you do that? How in the world do you make that work? It's God. Wow, I gotta get some of that. So when we, when we put God first and put him in his rightful place, we are showing people some of the detail that helps them understand the picture of God's eternity. Look at Ephesians chapter three, verse 10 and 11. Paul says, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by, what's the next two words? The church. The manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, which was what Easter was about. All right, let me read that to you from the New Living Translation. Same two verses, just a, maybe a clearer way to say it. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, God has always planned to make the church the architect that shows the vision, that shows the plans, that shows the diagram, that shows what it looks like, that shows the pictures to the rest of the world about what he wants to have done. That's why we're here. And when we do those things, 
it becomes a compelling picture to the, rule, to the lost in the world that says, man, I can't get that anywhere else. And it allows God to ultimately fulfill his grand desire, which we see in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, where he says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God doesn't want anybody to perish. But you know what that implies? It implies that some will. God doesn't want anybody to, but some will. God wants everybody to come to repentance, but not everybody will. Now, I really hate to wind up on kind of a a, a negative cue here, but, but I have to because I have to give us a word of warning because it, it breaks my heart, but I've read too many stories and, and there's too much research that proves this to be true, that God, God is, wants to build this home. He's not willing that any should perish. He wants all to come to repentance. He wants everybody to be joined together to, to not only build this building, this dwelling, but to be in it with him forever. But I'm afraid that one of the biggest impediments to people seeing and understanding and embracing the vision and coming to repentance themselves is because sometimes and maybe too often the church distorts the vision. See, when we fail to live out the picture of God's vision that he intends through the church, this isn't going to sound good to you, but we are actually helping the work of Satan. See, when we don't show the picture that God wants us to show, we're actually working against him. Well, are you sure about that? Well, many of you are familiar with the story in Matthew chapter 12. Uh, Jesus was accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan. Familiar with that story, right? Okay. So he cast out demons, and they go, oh, well, he's casting out demons by the power of Satan. And so Jesus responded, And he said, a house divided against itself cannot what? Can't stand. When a house is divided, when it's not in unison, when it's not in unity, it can't stand. It's going to fall. And at the end of that description, he says this, and this is the part that is really sobering. He says, he who is not with me And he who does not gather with me, he scatters abroad, and he is against me. How many of you remember that there was one point where Jesus looked at Peter and said, get behind me, Satan? Peter. Jesus looked at Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Why in the world would Jesus say something like that to Peter, who had spent all this time working with him, walking with him, learning from him, ministering with him? Because in that moment, Peter was opposing what Jesus was actually trying to do. And at that point, at that moment, Jesus was working, I mean, Peter was working with Satan, not with Jesus. And church, when we fail through pride, unrepentance, 
unforgiveness, whatever, whatever might, might be you know, bubbling up in your spirit, when we fail through any number of those things to display the proper picture of God's vision to the world, we're falling in the same place that Peter did in that interaction with Jesus, and we are serving the kingdom of the world, not the kingdom of our God. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2. As we begin to bring this in for a landing, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now walks or works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. You know what he's saying? Paul is saying we all used to be in the world. We all served our own worldly appetites. We served our worldly desires. And when we did, we served the kingdom of the world. We served the, the prince and power of darkness. We served Satan. Now, we may not have worshiped Satan, but we served his purpose because we lived opposed to what God was trying to do in the world. So verses one through three there tell us we all were there. And when we were, we were children of wrath. Look at, at verse 13 again. First few words. But now in Christ Jesus. But now in Christ Jesus. You know what he's saying? You all used to be subject to the ways of the world. But now in Christ Jesus, there's supposed to be a change. You used to live this way. But now in Christ Jesus, you need to be living this way. You used to serve these purposes, but now in Christ Jesus, you need to serve God's purposes. You used to show a picture of how people who give in their own flesh, their own appetites, will run as far from God as they can. But now in Christ Jesus, it's supposed to be the exact opposite. You're showing the world what it looks like when you run to Jesus and humble yourself before him. It's a scary thing to think that we are distorting God's vision and maybe it is impacting people and keeping them out of the kingdom of God because they're not seeing the kingdom of God when they look at us. And so flip over to Ephesians chapter 5 as we finish up. Verses 15 through 20, Paul says, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is and don't be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for the things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Here's what Paul is saying there. We don't have time to waste. We don't have time to play games in church. The souls of man, the vision of God is too big. It's too important for us to not major on the major. Can I get an amen? Paul says, redeem the time, make the most of it. You don't know how much you've got. You don't know how long it's going to be before God comes back. You don't know how many opportunities you're going to have. So when you have the chance, when you gather together, reflect God to the world. So that people can see this is what God's vision is. And I want to be included. Peter said that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That means if you're here this morning, God doesn't want you to breathe your last breath separated from him. God wants you to breathe your last breath with the confidence and the comfort that says, you know what? I'm ready to go be with my Lord in this glorious eternity that he has prepared for me and that he paid for me. So we did something last week that um, we're going to do again. In a moment, we're going to have everybody stand. We're going to pray the sinner's prayer together. And if you're not sure, if you're in the family of God, if you're not sure that you have ever asked Jesus to come into your heart and forgive you, then this will be the time to do it. And everything can change in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And after that, we're going to open the altar. And I am asking you, church, if there is anything in your life, if there is anything in, in your interactions with brothers and sisters here, if there's anything in your interactions with your family or, or people outside in your workplace that does not reflect God's vision, come this morning, confess it to him, get it right. It's too important to just play the game of church. I'm gonna ask everybody to stand. Let's bow our heads and our eyes. We're all gonna pray together the sinner's prayer. It is not this prayer by itself that saves you. That's not it. It is a heart that says, God, this is what I want. I want you. And as we pray this together this morning, if that's your heart, then God says, I will save you. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, would you pray with me all together out loud? Dear Lord, thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for paying for my sin. Today I confess that I need you as my savior. Come into my heart. Forgive my sin. Bring me into your family. Help me to reflect you to the world. And help me to live every day in gratitude for you and submission to you. In Jesus' name, amen.